That brings us to the next section. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through chapter 4, verse 37. In this section, Peter and the apostles continue to proclaim boldly the gospel of Jesus to validate it with miracles just as Jesus did. This leads to many more Jews repenting of their sin and believing in Jesus. Yet this is where the Jews, Jewish opposition to the apostles and the gospel of Jesus begins. This is the main plot. This is the main conflict. Verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at, time, at the time of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried up and was placed at the temple gate called the Beautiful Gate. Every day so he could beg for money before those going into the temple courts. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple courts, he asked them for money. And Peter looked directly at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. So the lame man paid attention to them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Standing, stand up and walk. Then Peter took hold of him, by the right hand and raised him up. And at once the man's feet and ankles were made strong. And he jumped up, stood, and began walking around. And he entered the temple courts with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people that saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the man who used to sit and ask for donations at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with astonishment and amazement at what had happened. Now, your first thought should be, this sounds a lot like Jesus healing the lame man in the temple courts. And now we have Peter healing the lame man in the temple courts. That's intentional. The whole point, remember, when Jesus came, he said the same things and did the same deeds and all that kind of stuff as God to show that he was connected to that. Peter's now doing the same thing. The point that Luke is making here is that the same Jesus that was doing those things in his life is the same Jesus working through his apostles now. And in the Greek world, we're going to talk about this a lot more as we get deeper, but magic is a big deal in the Greek world. In magic, you do things through ritual incantations, you do them through ritual movements, and you do them through talismans and relics. And you had to jump through all these hoops. And those who have taken my comparative religions class, we went through a lot of those things. And that right now today is the fastest growing religion in America, witchcraft and Satanism, paganism, and all that kind of stuff. What Peter simply says is speaks. No rituals, no incantations, no relics, no nothing. However, the one thing that is different, just like Jesus, he merely speaks. But the one thing that is different, Jesus said, get up and walk. And Peter says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this makes it very clear that though Jesus and God are the same by the fact that they do the same things, Peter is showing that he is, has Christ in him, not that he is Jesus. In the Greek world, and even today in America, it's all about, I have the power within me. If only you can tap into your potential, your power, that kind of stuff. Peter's not doing that. Jesus could do that because he was God. But Peter is saying, I have nothing to give you. But what I do have is in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's important. Now, the other thing you hear is he says, Jesus Christ. And he could have stopped there, but he says, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. 
Now, these three names are doing three big things, and this is really prevalent in 1 John. Jesus is a physical human being. He is the incarnation into a physical body. That is the man. Christ is the Messiah, the King, God. And that is Jesus Christ. So he is both man and God. Nazarene is a very historical person rooted in a very historical place, which means he's not some mythological mystery religion or mythology of a God-man like Samson, not Samson, sorry, Hercules. I always confused because kids' cartoons always draw Samson to be like Hercules, even though he wasn't. Okay, they are, if you actually can take kids' cartoons of Hercules and Samson and put them together, you're like, they look really similar. The same long, flowing, curly Fabio hair, the big muscles, the shirtlessness, like all that kind of stuff, the wrestling things down, oh, how we've been influenced by the world. That's not the point. The point is that he is man and God rooted in history and a geographical place. This is something that no other religion can claim. You don't get this with Buddhism. You don't get with this with Hare Krishna. You don't get this with Muhammad. I mean, he's slightly rooted, but that's about it. Okay, this, this is unique to Christianity. This is unique to Jesus. And this is why First John is going to come along and says, anyone who says they come in the name of Christ must proclaim that he is Jesus, man, and Christ, God. And that only through a historical event of death and resurrection are you saved. And if they don't confess that, they're not of God. They're not of God. That's the test for testing people who say, I come in the name of God, or a spirit that appears to you one night and says, I come in the name of God. This is what Peter's emphasizing. Man, God, historical figure, and historical location. This is the power of God. He is entering into space, time, and matter to heal people because that's the kind of God that he is. Yet, just like with Jesus, thus begins the controversy with the Jews. Verse 11. While the man was hanging on to Peter and John, all the people, completely astounded, ran together to them in the covered walkway called Solomon's Portico. Solomon's Portico is like a porch on the inside of the temple courtyards. So you think of a porch going around the outside of your house, think of a porch on the inside. Um, sometimes if you've seen some monasteries and movies and that kind of stuff, it's this roof that comes over to the courtyard and it goes around the edge of the courtyard and the inside of the courtyard and then has columns going down. And so they're going into this walkway. Jesus did a lot of preaching, a lot of healing in the, that, that courtyard, that portico. When Peter saw this, he declared to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as if we have made this man walk by our own power or piety, our own righteousness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your forefathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over for rejection. Now he says, why do you look at us like we're amazing? We didn't do this. This is Jesus Christ. He makes it very clear that it is their God that did this, not him. So not only does he proclaim it as he does the healing, but he proclaims it as he commentates on the healing to everybody. But he also says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what this does is it connects them right back to the Jewish God. The, your God is the same God as Jesus. Your God is the same God that sent Jesus. 
Your God that spoke of the Messiah is the same God that sent Jesus. Your God is our God. And this is what he's doing like he has always been doing. But the other thing is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means two major things. The first thing it does is it takes you back to the covenant of Abraham. These are the three founding fathers who the covenant was formed with Abraham and the covenant then was um, distributed out to the people through the sons and then eventually become the 12 tribes. These are the three men who begin the 12 tribes. And so it connects you back to the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant that God makes with humans. But the other thing that it does is it shows that God is a God of people. In all the pagan religions, there is never a God of people. There's a God of the sun. There's a God of the earth. There's a God of the crops. There's a God of family, kind of. But there's no God of the people. There's Kunim in the Egyptian mythology is kind of the God of people. He kind of protects them and looks over them only because if the people die, then there will be nobody to feed them in sacrifices anymore. We wouldn't want that to happen. But not because I actually care about people. And when the Egyptians talk about humans being created, Rock was crying that his children came back and his tears hurt the soil and humans popped out. And he's like, oh, well, we could turn them into slaves to feed us. And when Marduk of the Babylonian gods, he's like, hey, we don't like working for ourselves. Let's create humans to be slaves for us and feed us. And, and that's the way they, the humans view themselves. They are created by the gods to feed the gods. And they, the gods need them because they're too lazy to feed themselves through sacrifices. And the gods need humans because if they don't bless the humans every once in a while, then the humans might start stop worshiping and sacrifice and then they'll starve to death. And so this sadistic symbiotic relationship. What God is saying is, when he comes to Abraham in the very beginning, he doesn't say, I'm the God. I mean, yes, there are many times he proclaims himself as the God of the heavens, sky high, and earth and everything in between. And many people proclaim that. But more often he says, I am the God of Abraham. And then later he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac. And later he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he's saying is, first and foremost, I want you to know that I am a God of people. Because what I value more than anything is relationships. And so what this phrase is doing is that this is a covenantal God. Covenants are important. God's never made covenants with people. Allah has never made a covenant with anybody. The Hindu gods have never made covenants with anybody. Nobody has made covenants in the supernatural godlike realm except for God himself. And so what God is saying is people and relationships are everything to me. I'm a covenantal God who pursues. I'm a God of people. I'm a God of relationships. And what Peter is saying is that God has honored his covenant through Jesus Christ. God became flesh. And he stepped in your life and he's doing relational things in your life. It is not us. It is him. This is your God. This is our God. Embrace him. The covenant has been fulfilled. This is what Peter is saying with that phrase. He is not trying to divide. He's trying to unify. He's trying to unify. And the source of his unity is God. Not common ideologies. Not, in fact, they have very little ideologies in common right now. The only thing they have is they both have the same God. God. Then he goes immediately to Jesus and points to him and then once again, Peter goes for the throat again. That you crucify. You kill. And I'm not going to go into that great death because we kind of already did that in chapter 2. But he basically says, You reject him in the presence of Pilate after he decided to release him. 
but you rejected the holy and righteous one. Now this righteous one roots it right back in the Messianic prophecies of the prophets. Um, All throughout um, the Bible, throughout the prophets, God calls the coming Messiah the righteous one, the righteous branch. Okay, that kind of stuff. And so he's using First Testament language to say that the righteous one that you've been looking forward to for 400 years in exile, you killed. And so now he's going the Messianic route. He rejected the Holy Righteous One and asked that a man who was a murderer be released. And that is talking about Barabbas. You killed the originator of life whom God raised from the dead. Now this is a great irony. You killed the originator of life, the very origin of life, the very thing that has made you and sustains you. You killed, but God raised him from the dead. Because as the originator, originator of life, how in the world would you think that you could keep him dead? The grave couldn't hold him, and death cannot have him. This is the point that he's making. God raised him from the dead. To this fact, we are witnesses. We saw it with our own eyes, and we're testifying to it. And on this basis of faith in Jesus' name, his very name has made this man whom you see and know strong. The faith that is through Jesus has been given him this complete health in the presence of all of you. There is power in name. In the ancient world, they believed that names had power. To invoke the name of a being, a powerful being, meant that you could invoke that power of that being. And what Peter is saying is that Jesus' name is going to have more power than any other name because he is the God. But we're using his name not in a manipulation, incantation ritual. We're using his name to witness and testify to who he is as the spirit that empowers you and does the miracles. But calling on the name of Christ does have power. And I could go on and on with lots of stories of how that works in my own life and people around me. The faith that is through Jesus has been given to him this complete health in the presence of all you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as your rulers did too. But the things God foretold long ago through all the prophets, that is Christ, would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out. So times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and so that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus. He's making it very clear. I know what you did the first time was ignorance. You didn't really fully understand what you're doing. But if you reject him now, that's not ignorance anymore. You have miracles. You had that last time. But now you have the miracle of the resurrection. And now you have the miracle of the Holy Spirit entering into people. And even though you killed him, you would assume that all that would have died with him. But it's still going on. And it's still happening. Which means there is truly life with Christ beyond the grave. The idea is if Christ did this, and now I'm proclaiming to you that Christ is still doing it, and you're now seeing the physical works of what Christ did in his life before he died, then that is proof that he rose from the dead, even if you didn't hear all the Times newspaper reporting on the empty tomb. You can see that. Therefore, now you're without excuse. Do not reject him again. Why? Because the times of refreshing have yet to come. Now, what is he talking about here? He's talking about the end of the exile. 
Remember the end of the exiles when God returns. Ezekiel had a vision way back in the day of God's glory leaving the temple in chapters 1 and 2. And the glory of God leaves the temple and goes off into Babylon. And then the Babylonian army comes and destroys the temple. And so the very end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision, the temple being rebuilt, which is the body of Christ. The, the New Testament makes that clear. And I have a lesson on that. And then he saw the glory of God returning. When they built the temple, thinking it was a physical temple, and I know we kind of already talked about this, the glory of God never returned. And at that point, they realized that exile was not over with. So that when Jesus comes along, he transforms himself into the literal Shekinah glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration right in front of their eyes. Peter, James, and John. And then he gets on the donkey and he rides into Jerusalem through the exact same gate from the exact same direction as Ezekiel saw in the vision. And then he overturns the tables and says, this is my house. And then he says, they did not know he was talking about his body. And then he talks about going to the cross to prepare a place for you in the temple. We already talked about this, my body, that kind of stuff. And then he comes alive. And the point is that Ezekiel is foretelling and seeing the coming of Christ and the glory of God returning through Christ. And what Peter is saying here is that time of refreshing is now. Repent so that you can be included in the body of Christ. So the Shekinah glory of God can be in you like it was in us on Pentecost. The only way that exile can be over for you is through Christ and the Holy Spirit. The Jews thought it was a literal physical coming of the glory of God back to the temple for the nation. Peter's saying that the, the end of the exile is a literal, real indwelling of the Spirit in Christ and you as the new covenant believers of God. Not a building, not a nation, but a people bound through the Spirit. See, all they had in common was the temple and fire. But today, through Christ, what we have in common is the Holy Spirit living in each one of us. And it's not a location that we go to and how that it was built, but it's God himself in us. And Peter's saying, that's the end of exile. So exile is not an event that is over with in history. Exile is an event that is over for each individual person as they come to Christ. And every person who comes to Christ comes to an end of their exile, being outside the will of God, outside a relationship with God, living in a world of chaos on their own. That's the end of exile. And Peter says, it is now. You can have it. You can be refreshed. Which goes back to, I have water that you do not know of that will allow you to never thirst again. This one heaven must receive until the time of all things are restored with God declared from the times long ago and through his holy prophets. And so Peter says this is the beginning of all those other things being fulfilled. So Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, and you must obey him in everything he tells you. Every person who does not obey that prophet will be destroyed and thus removed from the people. So he now quotes Deuteronomy 18.19. In Deuteronomy 18.19, the the book of Deuteronomy begins with, You are a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, callous people, and you will continuously rebel and walk away from God. And only when your hearts are circumcised 
Paul then calls us the transforming, the renewing of the spirit, mind and spirit. Can you actually obey God? But you can never do that. So then he goes on later in the book and he gets to Deuteronomy 18. He's talking about false prophets and how to test them. And then he ends with, but a day is coming when God will send a prophet just like me. And this prophet will be from God and he will bring all the things that I've talked about. He will bring the circumcision of the heart. He will bring the transformation of Israel. He will give you the ability. And he will be from God. And how you treat him is how you treat God. To disobey him is to disobey God. And what Peter is saying is, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. In fact, if you go through Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel mirrors the life of Moses. In the very beginning, the first six chapters match up with Moses' life exactly. Going up to the mountain, they're going to Egypt, coming back out of Egypt, doing the mount, the mount, the, the law on the Beatitudes, all that kind of stuff. Because what Matthew is saying is, that prophet is here. The second Moses is here. But then after chapter 6, Jesus just blows Moses away and goes beyond him and does all these other things. Because Matthew is saying, because he's more than Moses. He's God. What he's saying is that guy is here. And this is the one that you are to follow. And the prophets from Samuel to those who followed him have spoken about and announced these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and in your descendants all nations of all the earth will be blessed. And God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each one of you from your iniquities. So now he quotes Genesis twenty-two eighteen, which is about God saying that he chose Abraham to be a blessing to the world, which is rooted in the first promises of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where God says, I will make you a great nation. I will personally bless you and I will, um, I will make you a great nation. I will give you land. I will personally bless you so that you may be a blessing to the world. And what Peter is saying is, this is the day. So what Peter is now saying is, it's for you first. So that you can be the fulfillment of what God wanted Abraham to be. A blessing to the world. And so what Peter is saying very clearly is that the end of exile comes with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the end of God's mission and plan. That is the beginning of God's mission and plan of going to the world the Gentiles and everything else. This is the privilege that you have. You have the privilege of being used by God to go to the world so that you may be a blessing. Tanhill says this, the Pentecost speech, which was the one in chapter 2 right after the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, emphasized Jesus' resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God. But the temple speech, this is the one right now in chapter 3, while he was in the porticos of the temple, recalls the details of Jesus' trial. The Pentecost speech briefly refers to Jesus' earthly ministry, but the temple speech anticipates the parousia, the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Pentecost speech emphasizes God's oath to David. The temple speech recalls God's promises to Abraham and refers to the Mosaic prophets. The Pentecost speech focuses on the titles Messiah and Lord, and the temple speech introduces other titles like servant and holy one and just one, leader of life. The Pentecost speech cites a prophetic book that in Psalms, but the temple speech cites the Pentateuch. Both speeches emphasize repentance and release of sins. 
but the wording is mostly different. Both speeches refer to the future participation of others in salvation. Again, the wording is different. Thus, the two speeches are complementary, probably deliberately so, even though they address the same type of audience about the same situation. A much broader and richer understanding of Christian preaching to Jews emerges from hearing two speeches rather than one. Peter is not just giving his back pocket speech. Okay? He is constantly developing and giving sequels and going deeper and helping them understand this because what he desperately doesn't want is them to miss the big picture and reject him and walk away and miss out on the mission of God. And so this is what he is developing. And this is what he's calling to. Now they begin to repent. And one of the things I forgot to mention last week is repentance would have been a big deal for these Jews. The Jews didn't really see that they needed anything to repent of. Now, they knew they had to repent of like, I lied to you accidentally or I lost my temper or that kind of stuff, but not a repent of sins so I can be saved. They believed by the fact that they were chosen and God gave them the law that they were automatically saved. They didn't believe that they had to obey the law to be saved. They weren't ding-dongs. They knew nobody could be perfect. They knew that works was not possible. They believe the fact that God chose us and not those Gentiles and that God gave us the law, making us special and didn't give it to them, then we're automatically chosen, we're automatically saved. They believe that being chosen meant that they were saved. And they believe then that they were responsible for then living in the way that God wanted them to do. So that yes, works to the law was important to them, but not for salvation, but because that's how you make it clear that you're a good chosen Jew. And if you don't obey the law, then people might question whether you're truly like a Jew. Okay? And so being Jewish, this is why John the baptizer says, you think you're special for being descendants of Abraham? God can make descendants out of these rocks of Abraham. For them to say, I need to repent in order to be saved and to be in God's kingdom and God's will and be used by God in a mission, that's, that's ridiculous. That's unfathomable. We're Jews. We're chosen. We have the law. We have the temple. That's those dogs out there that need that. This would have been like unheard of, confusing. And so this is why Peter, not only is repentance important for salvation, absolutely essential, but Peter keeps emphasizing. That's why he's going for the neck. You're like, wow, Peter, you're kind of harsh. Keep going after them for killing Jesus because they need to see their need for repentance because they've become self-righteous, self-reliant, or not self-reliant. That doesn't mean every Jew is self-reliant. Deluded into what salvation really is, thinking that they already had it. And so Peter is really emphasizing their guilt so they really emphasize, understand their need for repentance so they can really, truly be chosen and saved and used by God now. Yes, it's not comfortable wallowing in our dark nature. It's not comfortable truly facing who we are and the depths of our hearts and mind. But the more you do that, the more you cling to Christ, the more you run to Him, the more you realize you need Him. I used to think that when Jesus says those who are forgiven of much are loved much. I used to think that meant like the hell's angels, nymphomaniac, murderer, alcoholic, drunk. When they become a Christian, obviously they're way more on fire because they didn't grow up in the church and they're going to love God more. But I realize it's when you really realize that you are the hell's angels, nymphomaniac, 
alcoholic, drug addict, cursor, murder in your heart, in your tree's nature, and that we're all capable of that, put in the right place at the right time, and that deep down inside our heart desires those things, maybe not as blatant, but sometimes on the mumbling under our breath as we talk about people, that that's when you love much, when you realize that you are that. And that's what Peter's trying to help them understand. You're not that special. You're chosen, but not because you're special, but because God can do something with you. But only when you repent can that happen. Can that happen? Face the shadows in your life. Face the darkness. But when you do face it, face it in prayer with the Holy Spirit and cling to the risk of Jesus so you don't get swallowed by it. But then you can realize that you need him. 